The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we're welcoming a legend in music. Jerry Kennedy is a record producer, guitarist, and songwriter. Now retired. In his time, he's worked with the likes of Elvis Presley, Chris Christopherson, Reba McIntyre, Tom T. Hall. We could keep on going there, but he's also unique on this show because we don't get to do this very often, but he's a father, the father of a past guest of ours. Some of you remember when we had Brian Kennedy on. So, Jerry Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here, Paul. It's a real honor. So, I think most stories are best from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. I am from Shreveport, Louisiana. Born, raised there, and uh, my music, all the music things started there. And migrated to Tennessee in 1961. So those early years in Shreveport, tell us about the kind of music that you were exposed to. I'll tell you, the, the first music that I can remember, Paul, was stone, flat-out country music. And uh, probably my kinfolks having records around, playing them uh, from the time I was four or five years old, I can remember, you know, really leaning over on a radio or whatever and listening to it. And I can uh, remember my mom told me stories about when I was four and five years old that I would, you know, come in from outside playing and want to put the radio on because I knew that there was a guy named Harmy Smith. He's the first artist that I can remember listening to. He had a 15-minute radio show on KWKH in Shreveport. And uh, Harmy was uh, just him and an acoustic guitar, if I'm not mistaken. I loved listening to him. And she told me a funny story about when I was a kid that uh, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt died, they preempted Harmy, and I was very upset about that. So, But that was when I was four years old and didn't really understand. <laughs> but anyway, that that was the beginning of listening, and I just loved, loved music. I, I could not get enough of it. Some of the listeners might know that Louisiana is a state in the country that has just a ton of musical diversity. Yes, sir. Everything, as you mentioned, from country music to my goodness, rhythm and blues. Cajun to jazz to Dixieland. I mean, it, it does have it all. Were there any other styles of music that caught your ear? Yeah, uh, you know, of course, later, I was really turned on to R&B. Uh, they had a station in Shreveport that they called Race, uh, a race station that played music that I listened to all the time. Uh, I loved everything from Howlin' Wolf to Chuck Berry to Fats Domino. I loved being a child of the 50s was a great time to be there. There was some great music back then. So I listened to everything from country to pop and rock and and, uh, R&B. Those were my 
four favorite genres of music that I was turned on to more than anything else. A very, very iconic radio show from Louisiana. The Louisiana Hayride was the name of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Hayride that. Hayride was, when I was, gosh, nine, ten years old, I think the Hayride came into being when in 1949, which would have made me nine. I can remember going and sitting on the front row and just being, I don't know, I, I was, it was almost like a, an ethereal thing that was happening when I would sit there and watch all those great acts come on and they had some great ones in the beginning there. And, and the later on, I had the blessing of playing with some of them, but, but watching people like uh, Johnny and Jack and Kitty Wells, that was just something to be able to, to uh, see them perform. Mac Wiseman, Johnny Horton, oh gosh, I can go on. The Browns eventually came in down there and, I don't know, gosh, I, and I always leave people out when I do interviews, so forgive me if I don't mention somebody that's really important that you know that was there that I can't remember. Well, did you ever see Hank Williams there? I did see Hank Williams. There you go. Wow. He had uh, a drinking problem, as we all know, and I was there the night that he came out. They had kept him, I understood, heard later, in later years from people who would know they kept him in his, in his dressing room and thought that they had him in there without anything to drink. And I understand that he had smuggled a bottle in, but when they did bring him out, he was not in really good shape. I did not know that I was seeing Hank Williams. That was the only thing I cared about. I was probably 12, 13. Jambalaya was the big hit record at that time. And, I remember he sang enough of it to pleasure the audience and kind of turned around and weaved his way back off stage. But I saw Hank. That was big. What about seeing Elvis Presley on the Hayride? There's a funny story connected with that, and I'm sure that you, you may have heard it before, and I'll tell it again. But a friend of mine named Roy Day, one of my childhood uh, buddies man, from first grade, we were in love with music together. Anyway, we were both turned on by the guitar we heard on uh, That's All Right Mama by whoever that guy was on KCIJ singing it. I even called a radio station and got his name, Scotty Moore, the guitar player. Anyway, we went down to the Louisiana Hayride to see this guitar player. Didn't remember Elvis's name or anything. And when we, uh, you know, paid our, I can't remember, 50 cents or a dollar, whatever it cost to get into the hayride in those days, we went in, sat down, they introduced Elvis, he came out, comes time for uh, Scotty to play, and we're really just anticipating this thing. When Scotty started playing, Elvis started moving, and the girls went crazy, and we never heard Scotty. So we felt like we kind of wasted our money going down. But anyway, that was uh, eventually, of course, we knew who Elvis was. Hmm. So would it be correct to say that you became focused in on the guitar pretty early? Uh, yes, sir. At the age of nine, 
My father, right before he died, took me down for guitar lessons with a man named Tillman Franks. Tillman had uh, several students and uh, was... He taught me the first three chords I learned on a guitar, and then I pretty much ran from that point on by myself, although I maintained that relationship with Tillman. He was he became like a father figure to me. And in fact, at the age of 10, I was helping him teach guitar down at the J&S Music Store on Milam Street in Freeport. Tillman, uh, you know, would I was singing at that time uh, not something i was in love with but kind of went along with picking back then i was uh you know blessed enough to be asked to open shows close to shreveport for some of the bigger acts at that time webb pierce fair and young and uh that put a few extra dollars in the in the household too so that was good. I had a mom, a hardworking mom. She raised us three kids. I have two younger sisters. They are as, I think, dedicated to music as much as I am, although neither pursued it. They uh, loved it as much as I did. But anyway, that was the beginning of, of the guitar, and I just loved playing. I would listen to things like uh, what Merle Travis was doing and, and what uh, Chet was doing and, and just really was turned on. And then, of course, later, along came Chuck Berry and, and uh, some really great playing that he did that turned everybody on. And, of course, later than that, Buddy Holly's stuff. I was always tuned into the guitar on uh, when I would listen to music if there was one there. And tell us a little bit about when you started to make the decision, okay, I'm going to be involved in music for my career. Gosh, that uh, there was a fellow named Shelby Singleton who uh, I became friends with when I was playing staff guitar on the Louisiana Hayride every Saturday night, made 18 bucks a week. That was, that was big then. Anyway, uh, I was doing other jobs and doing some other music things around Shreveport, but never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that it would, uh, become something that I would do for, you know, a, a, a career. Shelby, was Southeast promotion man for Mercury Records. And they offered him an A&R job in Nashville in 1960. And in during this time, we, we were going and doing sessions. I was playing sessions in Dallas, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, down in New Orleans with the Cosmos people. And, and, uh, doing some East Texas live shows with Johnny Horton and uh, Carl Blue and Johnny Mathis, some of the acts on the Hayride. But at this point, still not thinking about anything. But anyway, when Shelby was going to move to uh, Nashville, he said, I want you to go with me. And I said, uh, and I was really uh, tied to family. I didn't much want to get away from Shreveport. There was a huge bunch of people down there. My mom had a lot of sisters and a brother and, I had tons of cousins and just wasn't thinking in terms of leaving all that. 
Anyway, bottom line, right before his, uh, his truck, the truck with his furniture left uh, for Nashville Shelby's furniture, he said, I'm coming by your house and getting your stuff you're going with. And uh, <laughs> anyway, he was so adamant. I said, okay, Shelby, I'll try it for a month. Came up to Nashville. At the end of a month, I think I'd only worked two sessions. And there just wasn't enough there, so I went and got a uh, uh, a U-Haul trailer. I was gonna, you know, take my stuff back to uh, Nashville. I mean, to Shreveport. He came by my house the night before I was gonna leave and said he had me a job with Mercury Records, and told me what it paid, and that was when I was off and running. Kind of the, that one month turned into fifty whatever years it is now. Do you ever want, wonder what would have happened if he hadn't come by that night? Once in a while, <laughs> I mean, to me, it's like fate incorporated. Man, you have uh, those dominoes that fall, and if they fall in the right place, I mean, there you are. And what would happen if we could sit? We could all sit around wondering what would happen if this and that. And, and sometimes it's fun to do that. But yeah, that's crossed my mind many times. You know, like what what would have had, what would I have done when I got back to Streetport? Because you know the the music was most of the people were leaving there, you know, coming to Nashville or going other places, and it was kind of a the beginning of a, a bad deal down there as far as the music was concerned the hayride was not as popular as as, as it had once been <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you, you asked a great question and and uh yes i wonder about that a lot hmm. how did the tom and jerry instrumental albums come to be that was shelby he wanted to and that was actually part of moving to nashville in uh, November of 60, he uh, asked me if I would be interested in doing it. This is when he had been made, you know, part of the A&R department at Mercury. He asked if I would be interested in doing an instrumental thing. And he said, if we could get Tommy Tomlinson involved. Tommy was playing guitar with Johnny Horton. And uh, he could be the Tom. And, of course, I would be the Jerry. And he said, I'd like to do an album and call it uh, Guitars, Greatest Hits, or Golden Hits. I can't remember what the title of it was now. Anyway, he said, pick out songs that were, you know, had guitar influence involved in it. And uh, let's, uh, let's do an album in Nashville. And that was a, a big deal. You know, when he, when he said, come up here to do it, I thought, man, that's great. We did that album on, I think, a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And on Thursday, Tommy flew back to Shreveport to make the appearance with Johnny in Austin, Texas, where when they were coming back out of there, the wreck happened, killed Johnny. Tommy lost a leg in that wreck. Tillman was beat up really bad, but survived okay. But that was the timing of that happening and that was a horrible week i had stayed here because somebody offered me i think uh, uh me and my wife a 
a, a, a seat at a BMI dinner or a CMA dinner or something. Or, you know, we would have been back in Shreveport because we had not moved up here at that point. Would you say that the early 60s was the time that you were doing the most of your, the most number of sessions? Oh, yes, definitely. It was, I think I did over 400 sessions in 1962. My goodness. And uh, that was, that's, it may have been more. But I was also trying in that during that period of time, Shelby had uh, moved to New York. So he was no longer head of the Nashville office and he made me the head of it. And I was trying to run the thing and, and do sessions and really wanted to do both well. And it was getting harder to do. So I started cutting back on the number of sessions that I did uh, probably in the mid sixties. And I was having a lot of great luck with uh, production work. So uh, I was, I don't know, it was, I'm split. I'm still torn as to what I love the best, producing or, you know, playing. And I do neither anymore. And it's still hard to put a, you know, get my arms around. Tell us about some of the, more memorable sessions that you did? Oh, gosh. They were all... I'll describe what I, I used to... to, to uh, when we came and did those Tom and Jerry things, we worked with some of the greatest musicians and heroes of mine, you know, from the time that I was in Shreveport listening to records. Grady Martin, Hank Garland, Bob Moore, Buddy Harmon, Floyd Kramer... It was just a ton of people. And the biggest thrill to me, even until the day that I stopped doing it in 1990-some whatever, was sitting out in the room with those people, creating music. I mean, they were the, that's the greatest bunch of musicians in the world. I mean, they were just unbelievable. And I, I can point out several things where funny things happen. In fact, we were talking about one yesterday. I, I stay in touch with the Statler brothers who I worked with for a lot of years. Uh, Don Reed and I were talking, remembering the day that we were in a session and we had just got started and a phone call came in from somebody that said, John Wayne was in Nashville and wanted to meet the Statler. Wow. Well, man, that didn't take that didn't take long to you know to say sure, let's do that. They invited me to go along with them, and one of the biggest we left a room full of musicians for about an hour, hour and a half, and you know they were probably wondering why we ran out of the studio so fast. But we were laughing about that yesterday. That it was just one of the funniest things, but something that we will always remember and. What a great thrill that was to meet the Duke. Little things like that. There, there, there are a lot of sessions that I can remember that where great things happened, and and you sort of knew it. Like Pretty Woman, when uh, we did that thing, I left the studio thinking, well, you know, Fred Foster is a very good friend of mine. He is was the owner of Monument Records and uh, was the producer of that record. And I thought, you know, Fred's really got him one there. And little things like that. Some of those sessions, like I said, 
were such a big thrill to be on that that could be considered some of the most different things that I was on. It was just, I don't know. Like I said, I never quite got past the thrill of playing in a room full of guys, or I think I had the greatest seat in the world from the producer's chair, looking through the glass at all that talent when I was producing. Unbelievable. That, that, that thrill is, you can't describe it. I can't. What are your memories of the recording of that song, Pretty Woman? Uh, I re- remember getting off the elevator. We recorded that song in an old building, Cumberland Lodge building, down on 7th Avenue, which is no longer there. And Sam Phillips, in the late 50s, had uh, built a studio on the third floor. And Fred had bought the studio from Sam, Fred Foster. Anyway, you took an elevator up. I got off the elevator. Roy and Billy Dees, who was the co-writer of The Pretty Woman with Roy. And I'd been playing on some dates with Roy. And so we knew each other. In fact, we'd been to Germany and done an album with him. And I mean, so I, I knew him. Anyway, he signaled for me to come over to where they were sitting. I think I was one of the first players there. He said, I want to show you this uh, thing that we would like to have put on this thing. And I said, okay. And he played the little lick. And I thought, okay, you know, he wants to start this record with that thing. So I didn't know until we started running the whole song down that it was to appear all the way through the song. I mean, if you think about that record, that guitar riff appears in there several times and on the ending. Anyway, that was what I remember most about that. That was Roy's lick. A lot of people give me, Wayne Moss, Billy Sanford, who are the other two guitar players, credit for that uh, lick, but it was actually Roy's. He had that when we, when we got there. There's an artist that a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with. He recently passed away, and he's been called by a few people the French Elvis. Oh, Johnny Halliday. Yeah. That was a, a, a treat to work with. I never could really understand him very well. We, we were able to communicate some. He was fun to work with. He uh, came to Nashville. I think Shelby, and she, yes, Shelby brought him here. And uh, we did, uh, gosh, I think maybe one album, and then maybe he came back a few years later and did another one. And I just heard uh, within the last few months that he had passed away. So it's a shame. Johnny Johnny was a nice, nice young man. Of course, we were all young men then. The most, one of the most iconic Bob Dylan records would be Blonde on Blonde. Uh-huh. And you played on that album. Yeah. I actually did one night on that project of course we did a bunch of songs that are in that uh, album that that night but my schedule was such back then that i couldn't really it was the reason that i didn't do more elvis things the reason i didn't do more outside i call it sessions was because you know i had a, a record company i was running and uh, i had day work and and uh 
producing artists and just didn't have the time to go do some things. But when uh, Bob Johnston called me and asked me to work that, I said, sure, man, I'd love to work with him. So I went over and it was it was a lot of fun. I don't really remember all the songs that we did. I've listened to the album and I've picked myself out on a few things, but I'm not sure that uh, everything we did that night appeared on the album. Can you remember a couple of the songs or maybe one of the songs that you played on? You know, I can't, uh, Paul, and, and that's really funny because I listened to it and tried to pick out the things and, and uh, get a little frustrated time trying to hear it. So I just put that part of it away. I know that there's a there's a, a guy, and I can't remember his name now, who wrote a book on that album. And he called me and told me, he said, well, you were on this and you were on that. And I wish I had remembered what he told me. Because he mentioned three, four, five songs that, that he knew that I had played on that did make the album. Did you have any interactions with Bob? Dylan? Meeting him, saying hello. Yeah. He, when I got there, he was uh, really cordial. To all the guys who were coming into the session, if I'm not mistaken, it was 6 p.m. and went way into the morning. But the first hour or so, I remember he went back over in a corner of the studio. We played that Studio A at Columbia was a big room. And he went back over in a corner at a table and was writing what he was going to be doing. So the pickers uh we all sat around and i don't know if we played cards or whatever you know but we didn't want to disturb him and uh we just stayed at the ready for when he was ready he would come over and we would do something and he might go back over and write a thing or two and come back and i don't know it was just it was unusual the way that it was going because he was actually finishing songs right as we were going to record them <laughs> Interesting. That was unusual. What do you think of Bob Dylan as an artist? I never was a big fan of his singing, but good gosh, man, could he write? Yeah. I mean, he was uh, absolutely one of the great songwriters of our time. Speaking of songwriters, I'm hoping you can tell us about your work with Tom T. Hall. Gosh, I could do a year on uh, Tom was uh, one of my, I've worked with three of the best acts who wrote their own material that, that ever, I mean, just ever Roger Miller, Tom T. Hall and the Statler brothers. And a lot of people don't realize the Statlers were great writers because their names were not you know, uh, out there and they never got the credit I felt like as songwriters because the songwriters were Don Reed and Harold Reed and Jimmy Fortune and Lou DeWitt not Statler but anyway Tom you asked about one of my favorites and he there was a guy in town named Jimmy Key he had a, a talent agency and a uh, publishing company New Keys Music. He was partners with an artist named, uh, oh gosh, Jimmy Newman. He, Jimmy was out of Shreveport and Cajun big time. Anyway, the first 
thing that I can remember my first uh, interacting with Tom was when Jimmy brought him to my office to sing a song that we were going to be recording with Dave Dudley, who was uh, the truck driving king back then. I mean, we did all those trucker songs. Tom had written a couple of trucking songs, and I was really turned on to them. So it was like human demo. Every time Jimmy would want to pitch a song to me that Tom had written, he would bring Tom and let Tom sing it. Well, I was beginning to really get interested in Tom as a songwriter. And about the time that I was going to ask, Jimmy Key asked if I would be interested in recording Tom. And I jumped all over it and said yes. Went to the studio and we recorded a record called I Wash My Face in the Morning Dew. I remember that. It just, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's its wonderful. Anyway, that was my intro into working with Tom, and I was never more impressed with songwriters than I was when he would call me during our time. As, well, gosh, we worked together six, seven, eight years. When he would call me and say, can I come to town and play you 10 or 12 things? Well, it was like Christmas morning <laughs> because I knew I was going to hear some great stuff and never was disappointed. What about Tom, the guy? Great man. I loved being around him. He was straight up and down, brilliant. He was. He, I would have different conversations with him than I had with, say, uh, Bobby Bear or Roger Miller, because Tom was, you know, really into the watching the morning news, and he was up on everything that was going on. So I enjoyed my visits with him because, and like he, he was a great, he was a great man. Still is. I spoke to him about three or four months ago, and we vowed to call and check on each other. And I needed thanks. Thanks for bringing him up because I need to call him and do my part. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not asking you to name names, but did you ever deal with big egos? And if so, how did you work around those? Gosh, let me think. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I, that, that could have existed with some of the people that i you know, bumped into or or worked with. That was never, ever a problem with any act I ever worked with. Maybe, I, I don't know, it was the way that I would treat them or whatever. You know, maybe uh, I got on their page real quick and uh, that eliminated things. But, gosh, I worked with Patty Page and Rex Allen and there never was a, a time when it wasn't all oh, men so cordial and great. I mean, it was just everybody's cool here. That was always uh, the the way that I found that to be. And even when I would play sessions with uh, people at other labels, I never, I, I can't remember ever encountering that. Like I said, it may have existed with them and other people, but it never was something that I had to deal with. What do you think about the records that you worked on with Jerry Lee Lewis? And there was one of my idols. I can remember standing next to a jukebox in Mule Shoe, Texas, 
and playing a uh, whole lot of shaking over and over. When uh, Shelby, he actually stole him away from Sam, Sam Phillips. Jerry came to, uh, to Mercury in 1963, if I'm not mistaken. And we started doing the rock things, trying to get the rock things. Well, this was after the cousin debacle in England and, and here. And, you know, it was really getting tough to get him played anywhere. During this time, and this will be something that I've told before also, but there was a, a disc jockey in Knoxville at station WIVK. Bobby Denton was his name. He was the program director there at that station. The Nashville Dixie Flyers, a East Coast Hockey League team, a little minor league hockey hockey team, was a big deal for all of us music people. I don't know what it was, but we all supported it for some reason. It was, you know, on hockey nights here in Nashville, you'd find us all down there at the game. And we would always dare anybody to set up a session during those times, too. So, anyway, we had a Knoxville, had a rivalry with the Knoxville Knights. And I would go to Knoxville, and I'd run into this guy, Bobby Denton, who I'd met at a disc jockey convention, I believe, sometime in the mid-60s. He started in on me, why don't you cut Jerry Lee country? Why don't you do country sessions with him? And he just run me crazy and I remember there was a there was pressure on to do something with Jerry or Mercury was going to let him go. And the last session that we did, I figured, okay, I'm going to do that country thing. And that's when uh, a guy named Eddie Kilroy found a, record, a song called Another Place, Another Time, brought it in. We cut it on a Saturday morning. And had it out a couple of weeks later, and the rest is, he was off and running with uh, with a huge run of uh, number one country records. And Jerry and I got along so great. I fought with everybody around him, but Jerry and I were always, you know, on the same page. And he did everything I asked him to do. He never did turned down any song that we presented to him. He was just great to work with. What would you say would be one of the more stellar tracks that you recorded with Jerry Lee Lewis? Gosh, that, to me, one of my favorites is a thing called Middle Age Crazy. And Jerry was tired when we did the track that was one of the last sessions that he did for Mercury, if I remember right. Anyway, he uh, was tired, and I said, let's go ahead and lay this thing down. And Pig Robbins played piano. Jerry tried to sing it a little bit, but he said, let me uh, work on this and, and you know come back later and put, put the vocal on. And I said, no problem. When he uh, left, it was like a week or two later, he ended up in the hospital and he had overdosed and all kind of, had all kind of problems going on. And, and really, I figured that track was probably the only thing I was going to get out of that song. It was a song written by, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name now anyway, Sonny Throckmorton. Great song. And anyway, Jerry... Pulled out of whatever it was, 
went went away and and got himself in good shape and called me one day and he said I'd like to come sing that song. He said I'm I've really I've learned it and I really think I can do a good job for you. And uh, I set the time up for as quick as I could because that was great news. He came in. Paul, when he walked in, he was white as a sheet. I could tell, you know, that he did not feel good. But he stepped, he went up to the mic in the studio, put earphones on, sang it one time. That's the record. <laughs> wow. And that's just, that's the talent that he had. But uh, number one, he knew, he knew that song was great, too. There were a lot of great things that happened. Chantilly's race, we had so much fun recording that thing. Actually, we had an eight, eight and a half minutes uh, long that we had to cut down to around three minutes, you know, but it just kept getting better and kept getting wilder and people were throwing stuff and we were having a big time. With all of these artists that you worked with, Elvis Presley, Ringo Starr, as we've been talking about, Jerry Lee Lewis, has there been anyone that you were intimidated by? You know, probably not. I never had. I, I was in awe of a couple of people that I worked with. Patty Page being one of them. I mean, she had that. Golly, what a great personality! And look at the string of hits that she had. And I was young. I think I was twenty when uh, she came to town, and we were going to do an album with her and. Maybe Connie Francis was, I was awestruck a little bit. And Rex Allen, who was the first number one record that I had, that I produced on him. Uh, he, because I had sat in theaters as a kid watching him ride horses and shoot people. <laughs> and then, and there, and here I was with one of my Western heroes, uh, and he was depending on me to find one, find a good song for him too, to you know, to take him in the studio and produce it. And I was twenty one, I think, at that time. But that was my first big hit record was was a thing I produced on Rex called Don't Go Near the Indians. So how do you get through the awe when you're in awe of someone? Well, when you asked that question a few minutes ago, I was thinking, you know, when I when I walked into the Elvis session, I had I had not really met Elvis, although in uh, whatever year it was, I was working with Johnny and uh, Elvis was at uh, the place we were in Temple, Texas, and whatever that place where he did his basic was, a few miles from there, he came to a studio that to the auditorium where Johnny was doing a session and I was playing with, with Horton. Once in a while, Tillman Franks, who was a bass player, would uh, let me play electric bass with Johnny. He would ask me to do that. That was one of the nights, and I remember that Johnny made the mistake of telling people that Elvis was backstage and the show was over. People just went crazy and rushed the stage and started going crazy running and Anyway, that was uh, one chance that I'd had to actually meet him, and that kind of went by the wayside. But walking into the studio, you're with a group of musicians who can help hold down the all problem 
because, man, they've got your – everybody had each other's back. All the players here in this town are family, and we did things as a group. So maybe that all problem was something that I was able to get past real quick because of the the the, the support that I had with all the other players. What does it feel like when people call you a legend? I think they're wrong. I've never, I would never consider myself like, what I always wanted to do was be a part of making other people a legend. That was my job. As I used to tell Tom T, he would say something about about something like that. And I'd say, look, I'm here to make you rich and famous, not me. And that's kind of the way that I went through everything that I did. So I've never really, never considered the fact that I would be a legend. I've never heard of somebody who looked at, or had, I shouldn't say looked, I've never heard of somebody who described producing like it was a service, like a service job. Well. That's, you know, that's, Mercury hired me to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I felt that that's what I ought to do. I know a lot of other people that, that uh, you know, they had publishing companies on the side, different deals like this, but that company put enough faith in me to do them a good job. That's what I tried to do every time I walked in the studio and prepared to go to the studio also, which was a, that was a big bunch of fun most of the time too some of the listeners out there they might know about the work of your sons your three sons are all involved in music right i'm curious were they ever competitive with one another if they if they were i never saw it paul they to me they were three different people and I never saw one competing with the other either in music, athletics or whatever that was that they did. I don't think they ever looked over, you know, the shoulder and and to see what so and so was doing or whatever. It, it didn't it didn't come across to me as ever happening and could have been, but something I never saw. Boy, am I proud of those guys. That was that was something being their dad you were telling me in in a note that you sent me which meant a lot that you would take a take time to add your thoughts but you were saying that your sons were your greatest production Uh, absolute co-production yes their their mom was one of the sweetest people in the world she uh gosh man she sure did take up a lot of the slack for that that dad that didn't get home very much but, uh, yeah, I was prouder of them than uh, anything that I could ever do in, in the way of music or whatever. Because they've all three turned out to be such great men. And, you know, music aside, that's very important. And they all are are that way. It was just the other day, and I was listening to this thing, a recording made by Jenny Yates. A whole month of Sundays. Gosh, Jenny and I go way back. She was a an artist. I think I produced some sides on her, if I'm not mistaken. I know she's a good writer. 
Yeah, yeah. The, on the label, it said producer Jerry Kennedy. Okay, then I did. <laughs> and forgive me for not remembering everybody I ever did a session with. Sometimes if it wasn't something that tore down walls and ran, you know, up the charts and through the roof, I just don't recall because there were hundreds of them. You know, I'm, uh, like I said, I've, I've been blessed to have had success with some artists, but believe me, I tried with a lot more than we were successful with. Because that's the nature of the music business. I mean, you, you can't take five or six, seven, eight artists and, and run a record label. You've got to have people that you're trying things with all that time. And if I, re if I recall right, Jenny was a friend of Al Gallico, a publisher friend of mine from New York. And uh, Al was, he was, he was always, had something going on. I think he asked me to produce some sides on Jenny. I think that's where how I met her. Great voice too. Yeah, good, good singer. Do you remember that? Sweet lady. What it, would you say of the of the albums that you produced? Which one would you say stands out amongst all of them? Oh gosh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you which one it was, but it's not for any reason that you would uh, call. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with uh, all the things that I've done with the Statler Brothers. We did an album called Country Music Then and Now. And on the then side, we had five old songs. And on the now side, we did five or six new songs. That was back when 11 sides were being put in there. Anyway, we were sitting around talking about how to fill out that then side. And we would talk once in a while about uh, doing an idea that they had had when they were flying from here to Europe. And every, every one of us guys who are that, that age we're now in our mid to late seventies have experience listening to some of these 15 minute radio shows done by local talent on some of these smaller stations that just doesn't quite come up to good. So we did a thing and named the artist Lester Roadhog Moran and his Cadillac Cowboy. <laughs> this was on that album. And it was like about a seven or an eight minute cut. And it was a takeoff on one of those old radio shows. You know, I mean, from signing on to signing off and horrible talent in between. And those guys were incredible. And, and we've talked about how hard it was for them to sing off out of tune, you know, and, and, but that's what they were doing. Anyway, bottom line, Paul, this thing took on a life of its own out there, but the thing that everybody was turned on to was Lester. So we did an album of Lester Roadhog Brand, the Cadillac Cowboys, and you would have to hear it to understand exactly why that would be the most memorable thing I've ever done, because 
that's the first thing people mention to me when I meet them. And I've never met them before. They'll say, did you, you were, you're the Jerry Kennedy that did the Lester Roadhog Moran and the Cadillac Cowboys album. Well, this thing involved things like, uh, uh, the guys doing a dance and a fight breaking out. And we, we threw chairs, broke bottles. I mean, it was, well, you'd have to hear it. But anyway, that one is probably the most memorable one because I keep being reminded of it. And I told somebody not long ago, I said, you know, it's a shame. This is probably going to be my legacy. That, that thing that, that, uh, that we did. And actually it's horrible, but sold very well. Well, on that note, I would have to ask you what you think about the direction that the music business is going in these days. I love some of it. Music, what happened to me was, and this is something probably that happens to most people, my fire went out. I remember the last thing that I produced when I walked out of the studio, I thought, you know, that's the last time I'm going to be in a control room because I did not enjoy the last part of that session and I didn't enjoy play. I had tried to I picked up the guitar and played on some of the things and I was not enjoying that and it really was I remember it was kind of a sad feeling but anyway when uh, I quit that I kind of quit listening to a lot of music also but I didn't listen to enough of it to know what there's something about it that bothers me. It all kind of sounds the same. A lot, a lot of it does. And I just remember a time when we we worked with what we would call stylists. You knew who Cash was two words into it. You knew who Tom T was. You knew who, you know, Glenn Campbell was. These were people that you didn't have to. Re- now maybe the younger people out there know the difference, but it's it's something that I can't tell. And that's my only complaint. I wish they did. I wish they did better songs. Of the artists that are out there still touring, still recording, who would you say you have an admiration for? Oh gosh, great admiration for Ricky Skaggs. Probably one of the best musician singers that 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 is out there. Vince Gill. And he's appearing with the Eagles, so I'm not sure about uh, what his solo career is like right now. Uh, but as far as still out there, gosh, I'm not. I guess Bobby Bear, somebody I worked with, Bobby still uh, works some. Tom T has called it a day, and we laugh about that. Statler's called it a day. Roger passed away. These are people I worked with. I'll tell you a new act that I kind of like is Zach Brown. Oh, yeah. Chris Chris Stapleton has done a couple of interesting things that I've sat back and listened all the way through. But I'll be honest, when I get in the car and I have satellite radio, it goes to Willie's Roadhouse. And <laughs> I, it's kind of like This Is Your Life, which is an old show that a guy named Ralph Edwards did. I don't know how old you are, but you may not remember him, but. That was a show back in the early 50s, I think, TV, where he would drag somebody out on on the thing, and then they would 
surprise them with everybody that they'd ever met and all this other stuff. This is your life is what he would do. But that's kind of, this is my professional life that I listen to on there because I, if I drive from here to say uh, Gatlinburg, which is a four hour drive, I'll probably hear 25 or 30 things that I was connected with either played on or produced. And it really is, I don't know. I, I, I've downloaded a lot of music too. Most of the downloads I've done have been things that I grew up with. The Four Lads, The Platters, uh, The Diamonds, uh, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, things like that. Those are the things that I really migrate back to 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 listen to when I want to listen to something on my iPad. What would you say is the best thing about being Jerry Kennedy? Wow. Probably the blessings that I've had. I'm not somebody who's going to say I did all what I want, you know, that I've done everything or whatever. But what I have been involved with, I've created a family of people that have surrounded me that this is professionally. Uh, that have uh, surrounded me with everything from Paul. If you walked into a session of mine, you'd see a bunch of players really going after it. I mean, they tried hard for me, and I've played sessions for other acts at other labels when I noticed that they did not try as hard. And what what that was about, I don't know, but. I think the people that I have come across and was had the honor, the privilege of, of producing, meeting, whatever, through music was probably one of the best things about being Jerry Kennedy. Well, as I told your son, Brian Kennedy, we have a very unique luxury in that we're able to communicate with people so easily. And so I always like to leave this way. I would just give you the microphone, totally open-ended. What would you say to the folks who are tuned in? Oh, boy. Uh, and I know, and I've listened to some of your interviews. Uh, I'm going to say, and this is something that I've tried to live, love everybody. And if you go in that way, you may have to come out another way, but if you go in that way, chances are that's going to stick. And uh, I've always had that approach when I would uh, be working with a new act, no matter who it was, who uh, if somebody had uh, assigned that to me from, say, Chicago, which is where our home office was, they may have called me to do, gosh, something that they signed. I can't remember anything right now. But anyway, uh, our people that I would go out and, and uh, go after to sign, if I approached them with that great attitude and, and, and uh, respect for the talent that they had, and everybody has some, everybody, then chances are you've got a friend for life. I've never found that to be any different. Well, Mr. Kennedy, thank you very much for sharing with us. Paul, I just hope it's something you can use, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm not the best interview in the world. I get a, 
I get started and start rambling all over the place, but that's kind of the way my career has been. <laughs> so that's, I hope that it's something that, that the, your listeners will, you know, like. Well, I've enjoyed it. It was an honor to do it. I have too. You're, you're a good interviewer. Thank you very much. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you again, and, and until we meet again. Thank you, Paul. If you ever get up this way, holler at me. I will. Absolutely. Buy you a coffee. <laughs> I'd like that. All right, sir. All right, sir. Well, have a wonderful day. You too, Paul. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>